Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Being remarkable, now that's a worthy goal, whether you're leading a team, leading a project, or just leading yourself for that matter. What I want to talk about is what does it take to be remarkable? And more importantly, what do remarkable teams do that's really unique about them? And then because everything that at work happens, happens through conversation, I want to talk about what makes for remarkable conversations and even, heaven forbid, remarkable meetings. So my guest today is Paul Extel. Paul has been a guest a few years ago when we were talking about um, some of his former work on how to have effective meetings. But Paul is a corporate trainer who focuses on individuals and in groups and on helping them be remarkable and is the author of two award-winning books. One is The 10 Powerful Things to Say to Your Kids, which is highly recommended from all sorts of corners on parenting issues, but that's not our purpose for today. Our purpose for today is his second book, Meetings Matter, Eight Powerful Strategies for Remarkable Conversations. Now, this latter book, Meetings Matter, has received a number of accolades, including a Goldwater winner in both the Nonfiction Book Awards, the Benjamin Franklin Awards, the Silver Award winner at the Nautilus Book Awards, and first runner-up at the Eric Hoffer Prize. Lots of people have been talking about it. And Paul has also developed a training series around being remarkable, which is designed to be led by both managers and HR specialists. Um, Paul has a long history in corporate life. 10 years in a manufacturing job, and 25 years of experience in corporate training. You can find out more about him at paulextel.com. And with that, Paul, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I appreciate um, being here, Wanda. I look forward to having a conversation with you. Me too. Me too. I'm excited about this. And I love this frame that you've put it all in. This notion of remarkable, being remarkable, remarkable teams, remarkable conversations, remarkable meetings. Before I launch into what all this means to you and what we do about it and how we get there, why does this topic matter to you? Well, I think one, I'm a big fan of the corporate world. Um, because not everybody can be a consultant, not everybody can have their own business. And so many people rely on large organizations for work and actually, more than importantly, their sense of community. And I run into lots of people who somehow think that they've got to give up some part of themselves to be part of an organization, and I don't think that's true. I also think that on many of the issues in life, such as inclusion, the corporate world needs to take the lead or has a possibility of taking the lead and making a difference there. So I think one thing is I'm a fan of large organizations, and I'm a fan of people feeling like they stand out. I recently was at a uh, conference, and there was a retail guru there, and he was talking about, well, we lose all of our retail stores to Amazon and that whole trend being there. And he said something that resonated with me, which is the next trend is going to be about curating for individuals because 
all human beings want to be seen as unique and relevant and treated accordingly. And I said, wow, that kind of fits my own view. Everybody wants to be seen unique and relevant. I go back to this being remarkable idea, and there's three or four touch points for me. A long time ago, Al Cap, the cartoonist, had a cartoon, and it was, nothing is so ordinary as the desire to be extraordinary. I thought, wow, that makes sense. And I love baseball. The Cardinals are one of my favorite teams, and they have a pitcher. And he said something which gets you to the other scale. If you're willing to be mediocre, you'll be mediocre. (laughs) And, wow, I thought, boy, that holds true, too. And I run into people who want to be special and people who seem to have settled for being mediocre. And so that whole field is important to me. And then I read a book by Jeff Colvin called Talent is Overrated. And he made the same point that another person made, which is there's a few freaky good people in the world. So uh, you probably wanted to saw the movie Hidden Figures, where yeah. the mm-hmm. women who were the math, the computer, and some of them were just freaky good at math. And there are some people in life who are freaky good, but that's not you and me. And so what does it take to stand out? Jeff Colvin says, effort, knowing the right things to learn and practice. And I remember a quote by Tiger Woods. He said, people don't understand that when I grew up, I was never the most talented. I was never the biggest. I was never the fastest. I was certainly never the strongest. The only thing that I had was my work ethic, and that's been what's gotten me this far and kept me there. So that all resonates with me about people want to be good, They want to be seen as relevant and contribute, and the access is there. Practice, attitude, work ethic. So that's kind of the whole background for this notion of being remarkable. Okay. Your story about Tiger Woods reminds me um, more decades ago than I really want to admit to having read this. The Harvard Business Review did a series of what they called Chinese tales, you know, relevant for leadership. Now, I give respect. It may not have really been Chinese, but that was how it was labeled. And one of them was about, you know, the student standing with the master overseeing the coronation of an emperor and asking, why this person? Why is this person now, you know, the emperor? And he's not the biggest army. He's not the most wealth. He's not this. He's not that. He's not a whole bunch of things. And the master says to the student, um, "Who? what's the most powerful part of the wheel? And he says, you know, the spokes. And the master says, no, it's the hub. And it's the part that can draw all the resources together. So it's that notion that sometimes in the ordinary is the remarkable and that willingness, you just said, to practice, to work at it, and to have the right attitude. Okay. I'm sold. Sounds good to me. Yeah, exactly. Well, it kind of gives everybody, you know, the possibility of being really, really good at whatever they choose to be good at. And I think that drives human beings. So. Right, right. Very interesting. So let's then turn. I want to talk about high-performing teams, remarkably high-performing teams. And let's start with what's unique about them? Great question. I think that um, 
most people have been a part of a high-performing team at one time. Unfortunately, usually it's when we reflect back on history and say, do you remember when we were part of that group? Um, and then on the other hand, there's all these people who complain on being too many teams and the teams aren't productive and they're not up to enough. So I think it's pretty simple, actually. Um, and it goes with the notion that you put teams together to produce something that otherwise will not happen. Um, so we want to honor individual work, and a lot of organizations thrive, a lot of projects thrive by just collecting the work of individuals. And that's always true, and it's important. But every once in a while, individual collection of individual efforts will not be enough, and you need to put together a group to produce something that simply will not happen otherwise. So I think that's the first answer to the question is what result is at risk? What result just can't happen unless we put a high-performing team together? Then I think yeah. it's also pretty simple is high-performing teams act consistent with being on each other's side, readily taking on work, and producing week after week after week after week. Um, they have other attributes. They handle problems as just momentary setbacks. They have the ability to attract talent. In fact, if you've been on a high-performing team, you lose talent all the time because people recruit them away, but it's never a problem because there's other people eager to get on. Mm-hmm. The other thing that if you are in organizations, if you ask about it, people outside the team know the team exists and consider them to be high-performing. So the reputation of the team within the larger organization is present. And it's one of the possibilities, I think, of having a high-performance team. You kind of raise the bar for everybody else. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I'm gonna, I want to go back just to make sure that we've repeated all this because there's a lot in this one. You say that there are results that can't happen without the high-performing team. And I find that way too many times we throw teams at it at a problem or at an issue because we want, quote, buy-in. And basically the team effort is I want you to sit around and sit through these meetings so you're sold on my idea by the end of it. And, you know, that's not what you described. So you said a high-performing team happens when we can't – the result won't happen without the high-performing team. So I think that's an interesting starting point of when do we really need a team or not need a team. And then you said a second thing, that they're on each other's side so that momentary problems are just setbacks. So say a little bit more about what you mean by that. What does that look like to say they're on each other's side? Well, there would be two kind of aspects to that. One is when they're in the group together, um, what would it look like? What would it seem like? What would be present when groups are being supportive of each other? Mm-hmm. One very okay. simple thing that we're, we're interested in inclusion, I think everybody is. Well, the simplest answer is who's not yet participating, who's not engaged, who hasn't spoken yet, who maybe doesn't feel like they're part of the group. Well, with that simple perspective, thing you're going to look for, who's not yet spoken yet, 
you can go into any group and identify those who don't normally participate, and therefore you don't have inclusion, you don't have diverse thinking, you don't have everybody engaged. So one of the things that would be a little bit unusual is if when people walked into a meeting, even if they're not the leader, they have an eye out for those people who have not yet joined the conversation, and they invite them in. I think there's something else is that when you and I speak, later when we reflect on whether our speaking had an impact, there's two things. Number one, does anybody build on what we said? Mm -hmm. Does our thinking add thinking and take people other places? But the other thing is, do we have the attention of the group when we speak? And it's interesting, I was working with some graduate students, and I was talking to them about technology, and I said, well, how do you all handle technology these days? And they said, well, we've got a rule. I said, okay, what's the rule? Well, when six of us go out for dinner, if at least three of the group is paying attention to the person who's speaking, the rest of us have the freedom to check our phones. And I thought, wow. So they know that attention um, and not being distracted matters, but they not everybody's responsible for it. As long as a couple people in the group have it, it's good enough. Well, I think you, that's true in meetings. So what would it be like if when you spoke, every person in the meeting was paying attention to you, no devices, following along, asking follow-up questions? That's probably the number one answer is when you speak or when you participate, do you have the intention of the group? And it's missing mostly for the most part. We've given up this whole idea of attention to devices. Yeah. So just for the record, you're not advocating following the graduate student group model. You're saying that really high-performing teams pay attention to each other fully when someone in the group is speaking. So that means not half of the group is on their phones. Everybody is paying attention. Did I get that straight? You did. Imagine, so four and five is the optimum size for a powerful conversation. So you can imagine the contrast. If there's four or five of us having coffee and talking, it would be very noticeable if one picked out a phone. We're sitting close enough that we can actually pick up all the nonverbal vibes. We have a sense of intimacy. We can tell if people got something to say or if they are somehow left with something about what was just said. Mm -hmm. In a group of 20, you don't sit close enough. With group size comes this permission not to pay attention. So part of our job is how do we get groups of 20 to feel like groups of four or five? And that's going to take more deliberate leadership or more individuals walking in with the point of view, I can make a difference with everybody else's experience by how I pay attention. Okay, so do you think it is possible, or have you seen it, that larger groups, let's say 15 even, to be a modest number, can feel like a strong, high-performing team? Well, I've seen a group of 60. Wow. 
but they have very deliberate practices. Every new per- And the only time you notice this group doesn't talk like a small group is a new member comes in because people who come in off the street don't have the same set of agreements and practices about how to be in conversation. But this group has spent a lot of time talking about what it feels like to be a part of a group, what they're about. They also have somebody totally committed to making sure every agenda is worth the group's time. It's well thought out about how that conversation is going to be worked through. People know enough that if they, what they've got to say doesn't add value, they don't say it. They rarely use PowerPoint because PowerPoint shuts down conversation. Mm-hmm. And they have something called, which I think you can understand this, they have what's called the group has spoken for me. So on every topic, they'll ask four or five people to say where they are about the issue. And then it's, okay, does anybody else have anything to say or ask that has not been expressed? But they realize that four or five people can usually capture the thinking of the group. So it's never opened up for all six of you to speak. It's always, who's going to start this conversation off powerfully, effectively? And then let's just check and make sure we haven't missed anybody. So, yeah, it's possible, but I just recently worked with the leadership team. When I walked in and saw there's nine, I just kind of relaxed because I said, okay, this is pretty much going to be easy. If I walk into a group of 25, I'm, hmm, I don't know about this. Does that make sense? It does make a lot of sense. So I want to come back to try to tie the thread through what we've been talking about. So we've seen a a remarkable high-performing team get results that couldn't happen without a high-performing team. They have each other's back so that problems are seen as momentary setbacks. And we've done some discussion about what it means to have each other's back, such as it really simply, we make sure that every person is participating. We have an eye out for who's not in the conversation. And we give everybody full attention. Like everybody gives everybody full attention. And there may be some other deliberate practices that you just mentioned to make sure that we're having effective conversations with each other. And then you said that um, high-performing teams People know the team exists and they know that it's high performing so that it ends up raising the bar for everybody. So this is, I mean, that's incredibly remarkable for sure. And we've talked about a couple of the practices that happen on high performing teams, such as the attention and the making sure everybody is participating. Are there other practices? And I guess I'm more interested in this from a member of the team than I am necessarily from a leader of the team. What else do I need to be doing to make sure that team is truly high performing? Yeah, great question. I think the number one answer, well, maybe it's not not the number one answer, but if you look at perspective, perspective would be the frame of mind you've got about something. Mm-hmm. I would think there's two perspectives that really good team members have when they walk in. One is, I'm responsible for how this meeting turns out. As mm-hmm. a participant, of course, we know that the whoever called the meeting is accountable or the project leader is accountable, but 
effective group members walk in with the point of view, this is my meeting, which now means a couple things. They're watching process. They're watching participation. They're looking out for other members, and they're speaking up when somebody, something needs to be said. They're also good if one of the things about having influence, Wanda, that has always held true for me is maybe the person with the most influence in a group is the person who's most willing to state that a problem exists, but they have the ability to do it without making anybody wrong, without mm-hmm. assigning blame. Mm-hmm. Because powerful groups really quickly acknowledge problems and when something's not working. And so as an effective member, the ability to state this is not working or I'm concerned about that part of the project or Wanda, I value you and your group, but I'm concerned that your group is behind and I am request we take 10 minutes to talk about that. Another thing an effective member does is they, again, keep looking for who's not yet in the conversation. They are also always interested in making sure every topic is wrapped up effectively. That is, we don't move on until everybody's ready to move on. They'll often check to make sure everybody's aligned. So they'll say something like, okay, we're going to leave this topic, but, you know, Jill, you haven't spoken yet. I know you care about this issue we talked about. I just want to make sure you're ready to move on. And then one of the things about powerful groups that I mentioned early on, that they produce results, they make progress week after week after week. And the number one answer to that is, in each and every meeting, a specific list of actions or commitments is agreed upon, and everybody's clear about what's going to be done, who's going to do it, and by when it's going to be done. An effective team member would not let a topic be finished up without specific commitments and time being made. Wow. So I think, you know, you're looking at somebody, of course, there's always the thing about being willing to take on work. If you want to stand out in an organization, you simply take on work, you give your word and keep it, you will stand out because nobody else is. Being <laughs> responsive and reliable is missing. And people have good explanations. They're busy. They're on multiple teams. But, boy, I, all of us can relate to hearing when somebody's going to be a part of a group and we just say, yes. Why? Because we know that person will take on work and deliver time after time after time. Does that help? Right. That makes a lot of sense. That's a lot to do, though. You said there are two things, but there's a bunch of things. There's this notion that I'm responsible for how the meeting turns out, even if I'm not the convener of it. So I'm watching the process. I'm watching the participation. I'm speaking up when things need to be said. And I'm willing to state the problem without making anybody else wrong. So there's no blame. It's easy to say there's no blame, but we all know how easy it is to feel the blame. So I'm going to say it without making people feel blame. And then I make sure that the topics are wrapped up effectively so that we're sure everybody has had has said what they need to say and we know what we're going to do so that there's a list of actions that are agreed on what we're going to do, who's going to do it, and by when. And you don't let the topic end until that is clear. 
And then I think the last thing you said is you're willing to take on work and you give your word and you keep it. Um, don't we all wish we had teams filled with that? I think that would make an enormous difference. I think I'm amazed too, regularly when I talk with clients, Paul, how much we've lost this discipline of the actions of who's going to do what by when. Yeah, I agree. We've gotten, well, there's a number of reasons. You know, managers don't want to act like they're not trusting people. They, they've been accused of micromanaging. Um, and culturally, I think we've slipped uh, in terms of promising to do something and then being there. I had a young father in class about a week ago. And we were on the same topic about people not being willing to give their word in the first place and then keep it. And he had a five-year-old whose birthday was coming up, and so they sat down with the five-year-old and said, okay, tell me what three of your friends we need to make sure are at your party so you'll have a really good birthday party. So this five-year-old told him what three friends he really wanted to be there. And the father said, it's so frustrating because we cannot get any parent to commit that their child will be at this party on Saturday. Not a single one. Everybody says, well, we've got a lot going on, but we'll try to be there. Yeah, it sounds like fun. And, but, you know, our daughter's got a lot. She's got. And he was just saying, it's like the whole world has taken a step back on its willingness to say, yep, you can count on me. So I think it is an old-time thing that we used to be very deliberate about, and now we've kind of just lost. And it's also, I mean, we've gotten really, I think, too careful about pinning people down. Another example for me, Wanda, would be is we don't call on people in meetings. So we want broad participation. We want everybody's voice heard. But now think about this. Most people in most meetings walk in with some thinking way, way, way in the background. They're not even aware of it. But that thinking is, I don't have to speak if I don't feel like it in this meeting. Mm -hmm. And then we compound that by telling the people who lead meetings, don't call on people because you might embarrass them. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you get broad participation where... People don't have to speak up, and you can't call on them. So we've got to retake some ground that we used to have. I think we need to treat people as they can handle it. Mm -hmm. You know, people can handle being called on. So, yeah, those are two missing pieces, calling on people and asking people to give their word by a certain date. Well, and attention. There's a third one to that, the willingness to pay attention for the period of time that we're together. Totally, fully, without. So that's three big things, Paul, that would really change the dynamics and teams. And I guess we all have to believe, as you do and as I do, that those three are critical for driving really high performance. And I guess if we believed it was really critical, we change our behavior around all of them. Yeah, I think it's actually, this is a case where it's pretty simple if we can simply bring back the awareness for those three things, people have the choice to start doing it again. Mm -hmm. 
It's not gene splicing. It's not some academic theory. It's that which we all know is true, and once we're aware of it, then you're back at choice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. All right, so we're going to take a break in just a minute, but before we leave this, is there anything special that a leader does apart? We talked about in terms of what a team member does, but is there anything additional that a leader does for a high-performing team? Um, Good question. I think there are. I think, first of all, I think you have to ask for it. And sometimes that's a difficult conversation because, since we've put teams everywhere and people think of sports teams, people have perhaps kind of jaded about the whole notion of teams. Uh, And so you need a manager who's not doing it because he should be doing it because he actually believes people will enjoy being a part of groups. I saw a stat that said 40% of people who stay in a company when they have a chance to leave, they stay because they're part of a high-performing team. So, number one, the manager needs to ask for that. Um, Then he needs to focus on the how of how work gets done. So, yes, we need to be clear about what our projects are or our imperatives or our super goals, but he needs to have a conversation about how he would like us to work together. And then I think the last piece would be that manager needs to express permission and give people permission to ask and talk about anything. So transparency from the point of view, if there's anything at all that you're curious, wondering, anxious, concerned about, about me, about this team, what we're about, whether we're spending our time properly, you can ask for it. I was just with a leadership group of a university, and somebody asked if they could question how the university president was spending her time. And she said, absolutely, let's take 15 minutes. Let me hear from you. Tell me how you would like me spending my time. Show me where you question how I am spending my time. Let's just, let me hear from you for 15 minutes. Then at the end of it, she says, okay, let me give you an explanation for a couple things, but here's what I'm taking away from the conversation. So that ability to say, hey, we can talk about anything, if you think about it, that's the probably the best definition of a relationship that works or a team that works is somebody can say, can we talk? And the response is, absolutely, let's talk. And you trust that that conversation will always turn out if you start it and stay with it. Okay. Ooh, there's a whole lot in that one in and of itself, you know, to get to the place where I am. It's easy to say the words, Paul. It's really, really easy to say as a leader, you can ask me anything. But the question is, how do I respond when I get a question I didn't like? Especially a question, one that questions my authority or that questions my judgment or questions the decisions that we've made or how I spend my time for that matter. And then the second part of that one is you said we trust that the conversations will turn out if we will stick with it. That means we do have to stick with it. We have to see it from the front end to the back end and time we allow to become the enemy on that one. Well, Paul, one of the things that is clear from me in this conversation is why now I think there is such a so few 
genuinely, remarkably high-performing teams. I think when we encounter them, we're stunned by them. We all enjoy them. We reflect back on them as sort of a high point in our careers for many of us, maybe not 100%, but for many of us. But there's some pretty tall orders in here, especially with all the competing demands that exist in corporate life. So I just want to go back to the three that really stand out for me in this conversation. One is that in every meeting, members, every member is giving every other member their 100% attention, meaning they're not distracted by anything else. That's pretty powerful. Number two, we ask for it and we give our word and we keep it. When we say we're going to do something, we actually really do it. No excuses, no explanations, no nothing. So that means we're careful about what we commit to, but we also mean it when we say it. And then the third one is that everyone speaks, that nobody is off the hook for acknowledging what they think, what they feel. And granted, in really large teams, we may have some mechanisms for making that simple, not having 60 people step up or speak at the same time. But there are mechanisms to make that possible so that you're not um, free writing, I think, is the ex- the statement. And then I like this really last thing that the leader expresses or gives people permission to ask and to talk about anything and is willing to stick through it and to hear the concerns are pretty simply stated and sometimes extraordinarily difficult to do. My guest today is Paul Axtell. We're talking about um, Paul's book, Meetings Matter, Eight Powerful Strategies for Remarkable Conversations. We've been talking about high-performing teams, but when we come back, I want to talk about the relationships that help create um, high-performing teams and high-performing organizations and what is it that makes those remarkable. We'll be right back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you are interested in the business of rental equipment, be sure to check out Rental Equip Talk Radio with host Donald Charbonnet. We talk to some of the top names in the rental industry, as well as cover topics that include safety, training, fleet management, legal issues, and more. We'll also cover the history and future of the rental equipment industry. Rental Equip Talk Radio can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace 
at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Paul Axtell. You can see more on Paul's website at paulaxtell.com. Um, the book that we're talking about is Meetings Matter, Eight Powerful Strategies for Remarkable Conversations. What I find fascinating about this is this whole notion of being remarkable, being a remarkable um, person in your organization, a remarkable team, a part of a remarkable team, being a leader of a remarkable team. And now I want to focus on this whole notion of remarkable conversations, particularly the conversations that happen in relationships in the team. Um, so, Paul, general question. How do relationships play into this quest for having really remarkable, extraordinary, high-performing teams? Well, good question. The immediate thing that comes to mind is the quality of the conversation in high-performing teams has two aspects, broad participation and what allows for broad participation is enough time on the agenda for people to participate. But what's called psychological safety, that is people are not worried about speaking to the group or what will happen when they speak. Well, if we look at the role of relationships with respect to psychological safety, one of the phrases I've often liked is that the quality of conversation that occurs in a meeting is a powerfully correlated to the relationships that walk into the room. If a group of friends walk into the room, that conversation is going to work. If you have 20 people and some of them haven't even met each other before, those relationships aren't there. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. I, uh, a factory once called me and asked if I would come in and do team building between the management team, which was about 15 people, and the union, which was three union stewards. And I said, well, I really don't have time to come and work with you for three months. And I said, but I'll give you an exercise to do. If you do this, you'll be okay for a while. And they met every other Monday for four hours. And so I simply set them up, I want you to do three paired listening pieces at the beginning of every meeting. So each member will sit down with another member, and you'll each answer a question for three minutes. So that takes six minutes, and then another person six minutes, and another person six minutes. One week, I want the union stewards to pick the questions. Two weeks later, I want a member of management to pick the questions. So it's all you do is you go in and one person answers a question like, what do you treasure most in life? Or what do you lose sleep over? And the other person just listens. So it's not a back-and-forth conversation. It's just one person being self-expressed. Okay. Three months later, I called them up and said, okay, I've got time. Let's come in and do some tea building. And they said, Paul, we don't need you. We're just fine. 
spending 18 minutes at the beginning of every four hours. We're now deeply connected. We understand each other. We know what makes each other trick, and we're having the conversations about the work issues we need. So the answer there is if you get to know each other in a profound way, it always starts working. The question is how can we get people to stop and get to know each other? It takes me to another thing. I was... uh, on a university campus, and a young Chinese student come up and said, Mr. Axel, could you help me? And I said, well, I don't know. What's your question? Everybody in the United States asks me how I'm doing, but nobody cares. <laughs> and it makes sense, you know? She so would say, hey. Somebody else say to her, how, how are you doing? And she would start answering the question and then realize there's nobody home. Mm-hmm. Well, if you think about connecting... It doesn't take 20 minutes to connect. It takes four minutes. And there's a lost art of checking in with people, asking people about their weekends, asking how that project's going, if they're on a business trip, tell me a little bit about your business trip. Because if you ask a question about something that matters to people, and then you listen flat out for four minutes, it's not a back and forth count, you just flat listen, people will make up that you care. So if we can just get people to know each other and check in with each other, relationships will just take off. It's not that much work. So that would be my answer to the question, how do relationships play into high-performing teams? People know each other to a level where they feel safe with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These, I love that this whole notion of psychological safety is fitted back on the table and we're actually talking about it. At least we have a neat label for it. I really like your exercise. I just want to repeat it because I think it's such a clever one. That it's management and union. And we have three rounds of this. So we're going to do paired listening, presumably one member of management and one member of union, presumably. And one week the union picks the question. The next week management picks the question. And you answer for three minutes, one person answers for three minutes, the other person in the pair just listens for three minutes. And then we do round two and round three of that with different pairs. Did I get that straight? You did. All right. I think anybody who has a team out there that you're struggling to get to a place where they're really talking to each other, that is not a huge amount of time in a week Um, in a regular meeting to just build that kind of comfort where we'll really now talk about what matters and and how that works. So I think that's hugely important. But now let me ask a contrarian question. I see or hear all the time that there's a great set of relationships among a group of people in this room, and they know each other well. There's a lot of camaraderie and comfort with each other, a lot of Oh, maybe teasing with each other, but it's just there. They don't hesitate to tell each other what they think. But there's a group that's not part of that uh, club, click, subset, call it whatever name you would like. Now what? Well, that's exactly, that holds true all over the place. Um and part of it's real and part of it's perceived, but that doesn't really matter. If you think about it, if you have a group of 25, it's too big to do the 
everyday work. And so there will always be a kitchen cabinet, three or four people who get together and actually do the work of the group in a small group. So the moment that happens, then the large group starts to sense that you're not putting the real items on the agenda or we don't have enough time schedules to get through them. So it's kind of a natural outcome or effect of having too large a group. The other thing is people who, it's kind of like everybody knows this, people who are in the majority don't sense what it's like to be in the minority. It doesn't ever occur to them. Um, so this thing about, I remember working with a large school district, and they had a question at the end of every meeting. I think they met once a month. But the last question in the meeting was, who in our district is probably feeling disenfranchised right now, and what are we going to do about it? So they at least put on the table the question, who's feeling left out, who's disenfranchised? Um, from an individual point of view, if you feel like you're not a part of the group, a couple things happen. Number one, you will always make up an explanation for it. A, you're a minority. B, you don't play golf. There's always an explanation that somehow justifies the fact that you're on the outside. Well, we don't want to get hung up on the explanations because it doesn't make any difference. So basically, you've got to come back to say, okay, if I feel like I'm on the outside, I probably have to prepare more for every meeting than anybody else. I have to look at the agenda item. On this topic, what are my questions? On this topic, what are my ideas? And then I need to find a way to get into the conversation effectively. Now, if I'm the leader of the meeting or a participant, as we talked before, one of the things that erodes the sense of being a powerful group is if they get into a dynamic where this person speaks first, that person speaks second, these people never get in. So if you're leading that meeting for every topic, you can say, okay, I'm going to pick three people to start this conversation. So if I lead a meeting... On every topic, I know who I want to start the conversation. And I'm looking for the people who will start it off in a powerful fashion. I'm also going to have who do I want to make sure I invite them to speak before we leave this topic because they're somehow impacted by it or they've got a unique experience or they're the department that's most left out. And then I have a list who are the old hands around here who've been through all this before, and they might just know where the lion minds are. So for every topic, I have nine people, I'm just picking a number there, identified that I'm going to call on if they don't get into the conversation. Well, if I'm the leader of a group and I am aware of what you just premised as a typical issue, then I'm going to start to look for how do I break that up by calling on people. Um, it also gets us into one of the most common complaints about meetings. There are two common complaints. People who are there who are not relevant, who are not needed to do the work of the meeting. And that's on the people who call the meeting. And we've we talked about things we've kind of lost. We've mm -hmm. lost this ability to tell people, we don't need you at this meeting. 
we're so afraid of hurting somebody's feelings. Uh, but the other thing is we've got to be able to make sure that when somebody does speak, they have the attention of the group. So partly on the individual, you've got to prepare. You've got to, you always have a right as an individual wanted to ask for what you need to be effective in the group. Mm-hmm. And if you need time to speak, then you ask for that. If you ask for a topic not to move on until you're ready to move on, ask for that. So, and clearly the people who are not affected by that, who are in the majority, if they can just raise their awareness and say, okay, what are we going to do about this? Does that help? Make sense? I think that makes a lot of sense. Um because I think there it there's a whole psyche that starts to happen inside any of us when we feel that we are not part of something or we're not central to it. I mean, you talked about it in terms of we make up an explanation or we try to justify it or sometimes we excuse it as, oh, well, that's just them. There's nothing to do about it. Or we label it as an inclusion issue, like a gender issue or an ethnicity issue or a who knows whatever kind of issue. All of those are explanations that we're making up. And if you're not careful, you find yourself withdrawing and withdrawing and withdrawing until you have sort of, you know, push yourself into the corner. I see that for people who are typically majority members, but who just find themselves in a group that they're working with, with somehow they feel like the, they're, they're not, don't fit as well. And then they just retreat. And so what you're saying in effect is don't retreat over prepare or prepare more than others and force yourself, get into the conversation or say something to somebody outside that you think is going to help you um, get your voice heard in that room. So it's not to take it, I think, is the final answer. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, it's tough because once a group gets large, it's uncomfortable to speak up unless mm-hmm. you just have one of these gifts of being outgoing. And most of us don't. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other thing I hear about this is we have virtual teams. And the typical, it's not 100% virtual teams because that would be easier to manage, but the typical formula is I have 10 people or 12 people in the room and one or two on the phone and often in the wrong time zone at the same time. So do you have any advice on that one? Yeah, very good. So the number one complaint with respect to virtual meetings is that the people who are calling in do not have technology good enough for them to feel like they're actually in the room. Mm -hmm. So we take care of the technology needs of the people in the room, but the people calling in don't have the technology. Also, you need to be more deliberate. So you need more time for every topic because you have to keep track of who's out there and you have to check in. And you need some kind of procedures. So say on the first topic, you ask the people who are calling in to speak first. On the second topic, you start with three or four people in the room, and then you check with people who are listening in. So you just visibly make a chart for yourself with the names of the people who are calling in, and then you make it your practice to call on them. You also, I mean, there's, this applies to people in the meeting. There are some people who 
signal softly that they've got something to say, but they never get in. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the ones who just jump in and interrupt to get in. It's the soft-spoken ones don't. It's even made more difficult if you're online. I think the other thing is that people in the room take the people calling in for granted. So one of the complaints about people calling in is they hear the people in the room talking amongst themselves and they can't hear. Mm -hmm. And so this would take kind of a, kind of a real adult look from the people in the room is, look, we're not going to have a conversation between us that the people out there can't quite get because it adds to their sense of not being connected, not being able to communicate, and not be included. Great. So what you're saying, in effect, Paul, is more discipline around how we talk, again, how we pay attention, more deliberate calling on people to make sure that voices are heard, both the softer ones in the room as well as the ones that are on the phone. And that means we're not allowing anybody to sit there and go to the background. We want everybody participating. And we're right back to what it takes to make high-performing teams. Yeah, I like it. (laughs) All right, fabulous. All right, Paul, you got one minute, literally one minute. What's your last piece of advice about the relationships that create high-performing teams? So I would think I would pick out one idea that resonated with you in our conversation and practice it for two weeks. So I'll just quickly go through some that would be the highlights for me. Look for who's not yet participating in the conversation. Invite them in. Notice who interrupts who, and when that happens, what happens to the conversation. Note every time the conversation changes, don't change conversation without permission. Note every time somebody promises to do something and there's no deadline. Set aside technology and be fully present. Practice focused speaking, be clear, concise, and relevant. The point being, if you just take one of those things and you look for it in every meeting, or call on two people in every meeting. That would be a powerful practice. At the end of two weeks, you would be very adept at calling on people gently and strategically. So that would be my advice. Pick out one small thing, practice it for two weeks, change it from an intentional action to an instinctive action. Right. I love it, Paul. I don't think I could have said it any better. So, and now you know, Paul Axtell, the book we've been talking about is Meetings That Matter, Eight Powerful Strategies for Remarkable Conversations. And I think you've just heard the strategies. So not, uh, I won't even repeat them. I will leave it at that. Um, Paul, thank you for being a guest today. I think there's a lot to learn that we can all do to make our meetings much better. Well, you're welcome, and I trust there'll be a few people who listen in who say, okay, I'm going to go back and take this team to another level. Thank you so much, Wanda. Thank you, Paul, and join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Oh,